Welcome to another episode of France Ward's podcast series, Shoveling Smoke. I'm Chris Kaler, a partner at France Ward, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're taking the podcast all the way up to the Supreme Court of Ohio as we talk to Justice Michael Donnelly about an important new initiative in Ohio criminal courts that aims to bring fairness and transparency in sentencing for felonies. Justice Donnelly has served on the Supreme Court since January of 2019. Before that, he served on the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas for 16 years. And prior to serving on the Common Pleas bench, he was a practicing attorney for over 10 years, first as a Cuyahoga County prosecutor, and then in a civil litigation practice. So he's really seen things from all sides. Justice Donnelly's interests and involvement in judicial issues reflect his passion for service and professionalism in the legal world. Here are just a few of the groups he's worked with. The Supreme Court's Commission on Professionalism, the Supreme Court's Death Penalty Task Force, Cuyahoga County's Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Court, and he's also a faculty member at The Ohio Judicial College. So the topic we're talking about today is really just a continuation of the important work he's done in the past. Welcome, Justice Donnelly. Thank you for having me, Chris. Also joining us today is my friend and partner, Chris Keim, who is France Ward's managing partner. Prior to joining us in 2002, Chris was a Cuyahoga County prosecutor as well and tried dozens of murder, drug trafficking, and other serious felony cases. He's still trying cases here at France Ward, but in the civil arena. Like Justice Donnelly, he doesn't let his day job get in the way of serving the community. He's involved in a host of nonprofit organizations, including his recent work with the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association and its initiative on racial equity and the law, known as REAL. Chris is the co-chair of the REAL work group focused on criminal justice reform. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Glad to be back. You and Smith can't keep me out anymore. <laughs> we, we will try. This is probably your last one. <laughs> Justice Donnelly, how is life on the Supreme Court? Is there much difference from the uh, common pleas bench? Oh, yes. There's a big difference. Uh, I love it. it but uh, in terms of um, day-to-day pressures, uh, I would describe being at the trial court uh, for 14 years as I was as more of an emergency room um, type atmosphere where you have to make decisions a mile a minute. And now I, the Supreme Court, I have much more time uh, to think about the the issues that we're deciding, which I think uh, is important by design. But I'm, I'm really enjoying the cases and reviewing the cases and working on initiatives like what we're going to talk about today. Well, that's a, a good transition. Let's move on to that topic, which is criminal justice reform. Uh, Chris Kime, people may think it's strange that France Ward, which doesn't focus on criminal law, has become involved in this issue. How did you get involved and how did that lead you to Judge Donnelly? So it's kind of interesting. We have to go all the way back to 1996 as I was graduating law school. Uh, then assistant county prosecutor Mike Donnelly and I went to lunch as I was strategizing how in the world Stephanie Tubbs-Jones was going to hire me to become a pr- prosecutor. And Mike was enough uh, was kind enough to help me. And ultimately, I did get into the prosecutor's office. And then, you know, you fast forward to last summer and during the social unrest we're all experiencing, you know, I, like many people, kind of wanted to figure out how to help. Um, and kind of as a firm, we realized, as a civil firm, we probably need to join with other stakeholders and key organizations because as a firm, we probably won't be able to do much ourselves. So at the same time, the CMBA had accepted the challenge to be a force for positive permanent change in our justice system. It started listening to its members and hosting a variety of 
conversations regarding the need for ongoing justice reform, and they placed out a call to action for its members, and I ultimately volunteered. You know, as someone who grew up as a prosecutor, I always wanted to be able to heed that call to action and help with the uh, criminal justice issues we were seeing. I ultimately became the co-chair along with Russ Tai of the Cuyahoga County Public Defender's Office of the CMBA Real Work Group called Continuing, excuse me, Continuing Criminal Justice Reform. The other three important work groups that they did were dismantling systemic and negotiated racism, promoting and growing white allyship, and interrupting the legal profession's systemic inequities. During our last work group meeting uh, last week, we decided that one of the things we needed to do was to promote and educate the folks on the criminal sentencing database that's underway, which led us to Judge Donnelly, who, along with others, has been an outspoken proponent and advocate of creating such a database. Judge Donnelly, what, why is it important to create such a centralized database? Well, for a variety of reasons, but I'm going to preface that by saying the more I study this uh, issue, the more I've come to believe that this is really the, the most important undertaking we can take uh, as uh, stakeholders in the system to advance the system to a place where we will be light years from where we are now in our ability to treat people uh, more fairly, uh, more equitably under the system. And I could tell you a, a little bit about how I, I came to believe that. Please, yes. So. One of the first cases I heard as a justice on the Supreme Court was, in fact, reviewing a sentencing case. And it it involved a 55-year-old woman named Susan Gwynn down in uh, central Ohio. And she had been indicted by the state on a number of nonviolent theft-related counts. She was felonies. She was dressing in scrubs and going into senior citizens' homes and stealing personal property uh, from from the residents there numerous times over a number of years. I'm not trying to minimize her conduct, but um, there was no violence involved. And she was taking items that traditionally thieves don't take uh, for resale value because she was hoarding them in her house, which suggested to me as a former mental health court judge that some mental health issues might be at work. But fast forward, she's indicted, she receives counsel, they negotiate a plea bargain, and at the plea hearing, she enters a plea, and she's given no indication what the state plans to do in terms of advocating for a sentence at, at the sentencing hearing. Um, and the range uh, involved, uh, the judge could give probation to many decades in prison. So they flash forward to her sentencing uh, hearing. The state, for the very first time, stands up and says, we are advocating for a prison sentence of 42 years. And the defense lawyer stands up and advocates for what we call community control, otherwise known as probation. And the judge ends up imposing a 65-year sentence on uh, Ms. Gwen, who had no previous criminal record. So Ms. Gwen showed up at her sentencing hearing not knowing whether she would go home that day on probation or die in prison because she would have to reach the age of 120. And she found out the latter. And it shocked me, uh, the range and the power that we have, that I had as a trial court judge. So shortly after that, I was uh, invited to address Ohio Sentencing Commission as a new justice. And fortunately, 
right before that happened, a national sentencing took place in the Paul Manafort case. And he received a, a sentence of something like 42 months when the government was asking for 19 years. And it set off this national debate on whether he was being treated too leniently because of who he was. And that interested me. So I studied it and it found out that that was not the case. I found out that in the federal system, they have the data, the information that we do not have here in the state of Ohio. And at the sentencing hearing, uh, Manafort's lawyers were able to present 17 similarly situated defendants that some of whom had been for the before the very judge uh, that he was going to be sentenced. And the sentences were dramatically lower from what the government was um, asking. And, the, and the, the judge, based on this information, was forced to follow what our laws call for, and that is to treat similarly situated defendants with similar sentences. And that showed me the power of data uh, right then and there. And I, I addressed it, and I began to meet other people that saw the same thing and have been advocating for this in different areas of the state. And we, we formed alliances and, and made it our common goal to, to make this a reality. What type of data is captured so that if the aim is consistency and transparency in sentencing, what type of data is collected and given to the judges if they sign on to this? All sorts of data. Um, we, we're primarily using right now uh, the state of Florida as an example. If, if your listeners Google Florida's broken sentencing system, you'll see that in 2016, some investigative reporters down in Sarasota studied very painstakingly extracting sentencing data from various courts in that area. And, and, and the results they found were very disturbing. They found that people of color were receiving exponentially more severe sentences than white defendants, sometimes from the same judge. They found a, uh, a defendant who was charged with aggravated robbery who had one prior misdemeanor in his background a black defendant, and then a one uh, aggravated robbery with one prior misdemeanor. The black defendant received a sentence of 26 years. The white defendant received two years jail time. So this set off a major story throughout Florida, and the the legislature reacted. They said, uh, we need to start collecting all sorts of relevant information, race, age, criminal background, all the factors that judges typically use to differentiate cases when, whenever they're weighing mitigating and ad- aggravating factors to come up with a sentence so that so judges can be presented with this type of information. It sounds like the, the program is somewhat in, in its infancy. Where does it currently stand and what are, will the next steps be as it gets further rolled out? Well, under Judge Gene Zamuda, a former trial court judge himself who sees the value in this, he was now on the uh, 6th District Court of Appeals, he has led an initiative to come up with a uniform sentencing entry, along with Sarah Andrews from the um, Ohio Sentencing, Director of the Ohio Sentencing Commission. And this is going to be the starting point. Right now, in our state, we have 88 counties. And if you were to, to draw typical sentencing entries from either of those counties, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't make be able to make heads or tails be, if you were trying to draw a, analysis between the two of them because all of them look different. 
Believe it or not, in some rural counties in the state of Ohio, they don't have computerized entries. They stu- still do their sentencing entries by hand on paper. So what our goal is to have a uniform sentencing entry to collect necessary data points. And what we are learning from organizations like Measures for Justice, a nonprofit who is pushing data collection in, in criminal justice systems across the country, once you start on this data collection, data begets data. You see the value of obtaining other forms of data data for policymakers to judge the efficiency of rehabilitation programs. So it's in its infancy right now, and, and the, the, the uniform sentencing entry has numerous data points that it is designed to collect initially, but it's designed to be a living document. So once we identify data points that are relevant and necessary to collect, that we can just simply add that to the mix. Hey, Justice Donnelly, if I could jump in, like, how long do you think before that data is collected and then judges are actually able to use that information in sentences? Well, according to Ms. Andrews at the Sentencing Commission, it's going to take a number of years. But what I'm optimistic about is as we travel around to the state and talk to judges about this, some of whom were initially wary about the issue, the more we get the judges to understand the value of this data collection and the, the more this information can, can inform their decision making, the more converts we are getting by the day. And in fact, a number of judges here in Cuyahoga County have signed up for a pilot program to start using the uniform sentencing entry. The entire bench in Summit County has volunteered. So every day we get people saying how they see the value in this. And, you know, Chris, you and I were talking before the program and specifically about young judges. Young judges really see the value of this people who are being called upon to sentence people for the very first time, they're reading our sentencing law that's been on the books since 1996. And the cornerstone of our sentencing laws is contained in Ohio Revised Code 29-29-11 and 12. And it, it very clearly directs judges to treat similarly situated defendants with similar sentences. And for the first time, young judges are, are turning to people like me who have served on the bench for 14 years and saying, how did you do this? How did you do this? And, you know, regretfully, I have to say, well, we, we, we had to rely on our gut. You know, this is something that was initially called for back in 1996. The framers of our current sentencing laws saw the value in this and, and said in the legislative history, we expect the, the court system to collect this data and maintain it so that it can be used to carry out these laws. And the problem is we never we never did it. And these problems that have been illuminated or not, not so much illuminated, uh, the political will to address what people have long known, that, um, that, that a lot of our sentencing ind- uh, outcomes are not dependent upon the rule of law and proportionality with, and fairness that is required under the rule of law. You know, the common belief amongst most people who practice in the system is that your sentencing outcome is mainly dependent on which judge is randomly assigned to your case at your arraignment. And that causes a mistrust in the public view when that's what they believe, that your fate is 
somewhat akin to a roulette wheel, depending on which judge you're assigned on the very first day you uh, enter a, a not guilty plea. Are you getting specific pushback and uh, from people, or is it more just disinterest? Um, yeah, I, I would, I'd say a little little bit of both. I mean, the the, the the pushback usually comes secondhand about judges at, you know, judges' meetings indicating their disfavor. But, you know, what I've tried to say is quite clearly is if there's a counter argument to this proposal, I certainly like to hear it. And I, I, I'd invite anyone that doesn't see the value in this type of transparency to voice their opinion because we need that. We need to have that debate. But the more people that we talk about the utility of this, the more people see it as a necessity that needs to be implemented. So just to be clear, you're providing, the goal would be to provide data and information to guide sentencing, not to tell judges how they need, what they need to issue the sentence at. Absolutely. I mean, every judge, myself included, values to have some level of discretion so that you can because every case is different. Every case has its own mitigating factors. Every case has its own aggravating factors. And if you're going to treat someone differently, you you should be able to articulate on the record why you're doing so. So if you're going if you're going to depart from what other judges are sentencing, particularly if you're going to depart in such a severe way, there better be a good reason for it. There's there's a very prominent. Uh, criminal defense attorney, Diane Meneshi down in Columbus, who has an anecdote that is, illustrates exactly you know, what the problem is and what the solution is. She, she was representing a client on an involuntary manslaughter, and she, through word of mouth, got wind that the prosecutors had intended to ask for a 13-year sentence at sentencing hearing. And she was shocked because she instinctively knew that this was way out of range on how other defendants with similar convictions have been treated. So she invested 40 hours of research time, time that the average criminal defense attorney does not have, combing the Franklin County records to come up with similar cases. And she presented it to the judge at the sentencing hearing, very emotional sentencing hearing. And um, the judge was able to, to follow what he was sworn to do, and that is follow the law and treat similarly situated defendants with a similar sentence because of what she came up with was that the average sentence for the set crime was three to five years. And that's where she was able to keep the judge by presenting that data. So he could not articulate any reason to deviate or depart from that uh, sentence. But also people, I think, need to understand that the big picture policy policymakers down in our legislature who set the ranges on trial court judges in our laws are going to be able to make much better informed uh, decisions about those laws than they did in 1996 when those laws were originally drafted. So ultimately, this is going to to improve not only judges' informed decision-making, but legislators uh, making much more um, informed policy decisions when creating these laws. Yeah, Justice Donnelly, you know, I, Judge Zamuda, who you referenced earlier, he he spoke to our CMBA work group. Thanks to Judge Emily Hagan and Judge John Russo, the Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Bench, they were able. They're in the work group as well, and they 
were able to get him in to speak to us. And it really struck me and crystallized in my mind when he kind of said, this is just another tool for the trial court to be able to tell their story about why they did what they did at sentencing. And, and in my mind, that really kind of crystallized what you're saying. It's, you know, and, and I also would like to, we talked a little bit before that we started here about you just watch Moneyball again, and I'd rather let you uh, give the analogy than me try, try and describe it and mess it up. So if you could tell how you were watching it the other day and you kind of brought you back to criminal Sure, sense. my daughter and I were watching that, and I had seen the movie years ago, but I, I had not seen it since I became involved in this endeavor, and I, it, it really hit home. You know, our society is m- moving in this direction in so, so many areas, and watch that movie, and it, it, will, it will really show the value. And, and what, what happens is in the movie, the movie opens up when the, the general manager is sitting listening to a room full of old scouts who made the decisions about who the team was going to bring on board. And a lot of them, you could tell from the conversation, were simply making decisions based on their gut, not on information, relevant information that you could use to truly value how what a player was worth and what their potential was. And the manager, Billy Bean, changed uh, the course of baseball because he said, we're not going to go in that direction anymore. We're going to change the game and we're going to start looking at analytics and and deciding who's being undervalued here. And, and he changed the game of baseball. And as a, as a result, you know, he was offered you know, one of the highest salaries in the history of the game because he moved in this direction. And I think it's going to take time. Any effort to change is going to, there's going to be people wary of, of, of moving in a direction of, and abandoning the old ways that we do things. But um, I think, you know, with, with this type of information um, and the knowledge of what's taking place in states like Florida that didn't have the data, where the unfairness of people of color receiving um, sentences ridiculously longer than, than white defendants. It's something from a public confidence st- uh, standpoint, we, we simply can't ignore and we cannot, we cannot drop the ball on this. So someone like myself, who's, I don't practice any criminal law, and I've, as far as you know, I've never been involved in the criminal system. <laughs> How do you convince people like me that this affects them and it's a worthwhile initiative to, to support? Well, everyone, whether we practice in the system, whether we've ever been involved in the system at all, has to have public confidence that we have a, a criminal justice system that is working right. Because the criminal justice system, when laws are enforced, when people break the law and there's consequences, that's how we maintain public order. That's how we maintain public safety. But we, we also want to believe that our laws are being followed and that our people are being treated equally and fairly. And if people lose confidence in the justice system, which is the bedrock of our democracy, you know, it's, it's not a place where partisan politics should ever enter. It's a place for Anyone, no matter whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whether you're moderate, independent, Republican or Democrat, if you have a dispute, whether it's criminal or civil, you want to believe that you can take that to the court system and have it resolved according to the truth and in a fair and just manner. 
So how can people get involved uh, to support this? I'll ask you, Justice Donnelly, on the on a statewide level, and then Chris, if you could describe how on a local level in Cleveland people might get involved. I would urge everyone that is listening and sees the value of this to, to contact their state legislator and ask them to support this. I'm really happy that so many judges are volunteering for this, but I think to get all 88 counties on board, I foresee that legislation is going to be required so that we can achieve that type of uniformity necessary to make this this database work um, correctly. Um, Write uh, op-eds. I hope that when every judge who's, uh, or every judicial candidate who wants to be a judge in the next cycle, 2022, is asked what their position is, because I think it's that important that we keep up the political will to get this implemented. I know the bar, the, the CMBA has fully endorsed this, which I'm very, uh, very happy about, and other bar associations throughout the state are doing so as well. And as far as locally, Chris, our CMBA, the Racial Equity and Law Work Groups, still need volunteers, so it really is not too late to still get involved. If you go to the CMBA website and look up the real work groups or send me an email or reach out to the CMBA, they'll definitely point you in the right direction of how to get help or how to help on a local level. At the end of our podcast, we usually try to give a few takeaways. So what I'm hearing, Justice Donnelly, from you is this affects us all because it fosters confidence in the system. So it's something worth supporting. And uh, there's there are easy ways all across the state to get involved. And Chris, thanks for giving the information as how we can get involved here in the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Justice Donnelly, thanks very much for joining us and talking about this very important endeavor. And we're anxious to see as this is implemented, how it uh, takes off. So thanks for coming. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to speak about this. And Chris, thanks you. I see you every day, but uh, thanks for joining and getting involved on behalf of the firm in this important initiative with the local bar association. Love to do it. So that wraps up another episode of Shoveling Spoke. Thanks for checking in with us, and we hope you listen in next time. Shoveling Smoke is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer and audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Thanks for listening.